This broadcast is part of the Atlanta Business League's official 90th anniversary celebration. This is Lessons from Leaders, an Atlanta Business League podcast. I'm Janice Ware, publisher of the Atlanta Voice newspaper. This is Lessons from Leaders, an Atlanta Business League podcast. Lessons from Leaders is a part of the Atlanta Business League's Telling Our Story broadcast series. This isn't going to be a podcast about one Atlanta-based Black business owner. It's going to be about a 197-year-old industry, a 57-year-old Black-owned newspaper, two generations of visionary publishers, deathbed requests, plural, and real estate, more specifically affordable housing in gentrified Atlanta, Georgia neighborhoods. Let's start with one of the two deathbed requests and why the Atlanta Voice newspaper originally began publishing. The paper was actually birthed out of the Civil Rights Movement. Mr. Clayton passed, and he asked my father to continue that publication, and he did. It was a deathbed request, and I guess I really should qualify the fact that Mr. Clayton is the husband of Zenona Clayton Brady. Civil rights advocate Ed Clayton died after he and Janice Ware's father, J. Lowell Ware, had only published one issue of the Atlanta Voice. Clayton moved to Atlanta with his wife, Zernona, who, among other things, became the first black woman to have a television talk show in Atlanta, was a confidant of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and became a vice president at Turner Broadcasting, hired by Ted Turner. She's still vibrant at 93 years of age. Incredible woman with a lot of stories and not the topic of this specific broadcast. Janice, where is? I started working with the paper in 1977. I finished University of Georgia on a Friday, came home, started working with my father that Monday. And I thought that I would stay there for three years to pay him back for my college education because I graduated with no student loan debt. My undergraduate degree was in the business school, which has now been named the Terry College of Business. So really, I was one of the first African-Americans to finish that school. In most of my classes, I was either the only African-American, but primarily the only female that was in the class. So I could not be absent from class because you would know that the little black girl didn't come to class today. You had instructors who said verbally, I don't like blacks and I don't like females. So if you're both, you're shit out of luck. You need to drop my class. Now, I dropped the class, but I did go, you know, call my father to tell him about it. And he said, you didn't drop the class, did you? And I was like, of course I did. You have enough to deal with in some kind of adverse conditions that you don't have to put something additional on your plate. So I didn't think it was worth it to actually fight somebody who's already said, I have a bias and I'm not going to treat you well. So they could say that you failed. They just posted the grades. But I'm proud of the education I got from University of Georgia. It made me recognize that we are a smart people. We can learn to do anything. Janice had watched her father live those words as he taught himself how to run a Black-owned newspaper in a town with three competitors vying for the same readers. So my father actually started the Atlanta Enquirer first. And that was in partnership with Jesse Hill and Herman Russell. That partnership did not work out well, so they parted ways. That's the diplomatic way to say that. But we still have 
family relationships <laughs> past that. So when you recognize it's not a good fit, it just isn't a good fit. My father then started a printing company, so he did a lot of printing, you know, letterheads, envelopes, that kind of thing. The Atlanta Daily World would not cover what was taking place in the movement. I don't know if King's name even appeared in the paper during that period of time. They really have a Republican background, which is fine because a lot of African-Americans were Republican years ago, but they needed to cover the student movement as well. So when Ed Clayton came down and it was the whole conversation about we needed another paper to really cover what was taking place. So it really started in the basement of our home. So. I don't idolize people in the way that other people may do because these people were in our home all times of day and night. So it was a wonderful environment. For Janice, it was also an entrepreneurial development center. Jay Lowell Ware actually owned five companies. We've just heard about the Atlanta Voice newspaper and the printing company. There's a story that gives you a little insight into his personality and explains why he owned printing equipment in the first place. The reason he actually purchased the press is that he took the paper to a printer one week and they did not like the cover story of the paper. And they said that they would not print it. And he said he was not going to allow somebody else to tell him what was going to go on the front pages of his paper. So they had to change it that, w that week so they could get it out. And then he got the press and he learned how to run it. So he was able to print the publication as well. So he was the pressman in a lot of cases, even though he had some other people who could run the press at the same time. So that tells you about somebody who's committed to making certain that people are informed and educated about what's taking place in the world. The Atlanta Voice Presses also printed publications such as Creative Loafing, which is a white alternative weekly. At one time, it had 106 pages and nearly 200 staffers just in the city of Atlanta. Printing wasn't Jay Lowell Ware's only profitable side gig, though. He also owned an office supply company and then moved into the real estate market, but not just to make money. So what I would tell you is that when I finished school and started working with my father, he had me to go and get my real estate license. I had no knowledge about real estate, had no interest in real estate, but I did what he asked me to do, a past exam. Three years later, he said, okay, now it's time for you to get your broker's license. Mind you, I don't think I'd sold one house during that period of time, but I went back and I took the test and I passed the real estate or the broker's exam. And then he transferred the real estate company in my name. So I learned real estate and I understood and enjoyed real estate. Janice has a passion for financial literacy and knows that home ownership can be a lifeline to prosperity for working class black families. She saw a chance to tie her real estate credentials to her passion and just went after it. Doing the 70s and the 80s, we used the term in Atlanta, the white flight. So you had a lot of people, white Americans that left downtown Atlanta or the city of Atlanta proper to move into other suburban communities, right? So what we recognize is that there were so many lots and houses that were vacant in that neighborhood. I just took a chance and I sent letters to all of the owners, landowners, house home, homeowners, and said, if you're not going to do anything with this property, would you consider donating it to the organization? And about 75 people donated property to the organization. And we've developed on most of the property except for maybe seven lots at this point, which was amazing. But at that point, the taxes were higher than what the property value was. 
the blessing was we had the foresight to ask them to give it to us to see what was going to take place. And our first for sale development was some townhomes. It took me a long time to get the financing for the property, 16 units that were two and three bedroom units. And when the bank decided to give us the financing, they said that the market analysis said you would sell one unit every other month. But there was a pent-up demand for people who wanted to buy houses inside the city. I had eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. They had diagrams of what the units were going to look like. And I talked to anybody and everybody about these units. And they started at $95,000. I sold those units in 45 days. So when the next financing phase came to be, it was going to be 32 units. The bank had no problems with giving us the financing at that point. The Sumac Community Development Corporation has helped thousands of people own homes. Again, it started because of the visionary foresight that J. Lowell Ware had. Sumac Community Development Corporation, so it stands for Summerhill and Mechanicsville. When my father actually purchased the building that's in Mechanicsville in 1970, that was during the period of the white flight. So he recognized that there was going to be some changes in the ownership and the land. So he did form that organization in 1989. We have developed independently and in partnership with for-profit developers over 1,700 housing units. So we're excited about that. Most of them have been affordable housing. So that is preserving an area for people to be able to stay inside the city of Atlanta with housing units that are affordable to them. Jay Lowell Ware died in 1991. When that happened, Janice shut down two of his five companies. It was a deathbed request, or it was a deathbed statement. You need to shut down the office supply company and the printing company because you can't run the press and you really can't compete with the other office supply companies. So I did shut those two down. It was hard because I worked with my father every day, you know, for what, eight, nine years? And that was a lot. So I think I went through some sense of depression, but I worked through the depression because what was I going to do? I had I go home and go to bed. I get up the next day and I was back at the office. You worked through it. You know, you worked through the sadness, but you celebrated the life of a man who was really passionate and committed to his people. The board of directors asked her to continue leading the community development organization. She kept publishing the Atlanta Voice and also ran the family's real estate company. So at age 32, she honored her father's legacy by maintaining and expanding three of the five companies he founded. The most problematic was the newspaper, because while the Atlanta voice consumer base remained the same, the way those consumers received their information had rapidly changed. You know, African-Americans view stories differently. So it's important for us to realize, you know, as we say, there's a story and then there's the other side. And we have been proud to tell the other side of the story. We still have the same audience. But when we actually did a survey years ago, you do have a lot of white Americans that actually read the paper as well. Because we're going to tell the story, but we're not trying to bash people. So, this again, it still is another side of the story, but you need to make certain the way you're telling it makes sense, that you're not going to be criticizing, condemning, but you're actually acknowledging what is taking place. So now, how stories are presented to Atlanta voice readers has evolved, but not necessarily on purpose. I will tell you that a few years ago, we hired a gentleman 
he was a graduate of Tennessee State University, and he was very strong in newspaper, and he was a graphic artist and those kind of things. He came to us maybe five years ago, and at the point that he came, he, you know, he was looking at things differently and telling us that we needed to change how we were doing things, that the social media was out there, that we we're going to have to do a different way of presenting the stories. I did hire him, and he was wonderful, brilliant guy, and he was a graphic artist on top of that. So... After he'd been there for like six months or so, my husband and I went on vacation. And I came back uh, a week and a half later, and he had changed the design of the paper. He changed the front cover, the way it was covered. He did all of this. And I walked in and said, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize we were doing this. And they thought I had given them permission to do it. And I was about to say something, and I had to take a telephone call. And it was from an advertiser that said, I love the changes that you've made to the paper. This is great. I'm excited about it. Increase their advertising by it. So what was I going to say? But thank you very much for what you did. Because we have a tendency, the older we get, to want to stay in the lane that we were in. Unfortunately, he died, I think, two years ago at this point. So it's no telling where we would be. But he introduced us to the social media platforms and tried to tell us how we needed to be on these platforms. I'm going to give myself credit for listening because had I not listened to what he was asking or telling us that we needed to do, I'm not certain exactly where we would be. Perhaps the Atlanta Voice would not be one of the largest Black-owned newspapers in the state of Georgia, which is an accomplishment. It's no secret that every form of print media is struggling. Major, well-funded historical papers with international readership have gone digital. Many have just gone under. Let's take a moment to applaud the miracle of the Black press for existing. Here's a story to help you understand the type of innovation and creativity that was needed just to make the industry possible. My home state of Missouri made it illegal for Black people to get an education in 1849. So a Black Baptist minister named John Barry Meacham found a way around those laws by equipping a steamboat with a library and floating it up and down the Mississippi River so Black people could read. After the South lost the war between the states, every major city had a black newspaper. But they were marketing to a target audience that traditionally had limited amounts of money and equally limited abilities to use their products because of the laws like the one just described. The publishers of these papers kept printing anyhow. Some cities like Atlanta, Georgia, actually gave African-American readers a choice on their views about news. One of the oldest Black publications, the Atlanta World, is now owned by Real Times Media, a Black group of business owners organized by Dr. William Bacard. And yes, he is also someone profiled in the Atlanta Business League's Telling Our Story series. The Atlanta Voice is part of a different group. They are 10 Black-owned papers that have labeled themselves The Word in Black. They formed to tell national stories about Black protests in 2021 and 2022 from a perspective not often reported by majority-owned media. At the time of this interview in 2023, the Atlanta Voice has continuously published for 57 years. But perhaps its biggest achievement is operating a business model that keeps a veteran staff paid and all the books balanced. The paper is profitable. So I would say we balance out really well. The fact that we are a not-for-profit organization, we're, we were actually formed as a not-for-profit organization. So profitability is not the language that we speak. So we're able to cover our expenses. I have not missed a payroll, and the checks don't bounce. I can't 
think anybody can ever tell you that I haven't paid them or that the check did not clear the bank. That's important to me. I just didn't say it from the microphone. But that's what business is, to operate like a business. It has required the ability to accept change. So we're distributing the print publication still, and that's going to still be a lifeline and lifeblood for us. We do send that newspaper in its exact copy out on Fridays to that database of 25,000 people, and that's an important thing. But we're now going to start sending more digital editions out so that people have more conversations. What's the top five things that are taking place in the city? And you've got to look at our business in the black. Of course, there are people listening to this podcast who might think that the times for needing the black press have passed. If so, that argument also needs to apply to Jewish, Asian, or Spanish-speaking communities, because the truth is the black press in the United States has not only told stories its core audience wants to know, it has made the entertainment industry money. The story of Dr. Katherine Johnson and the black women mathematicians who helped America send men to the moon was first told by the Norfolk Journal and Guide. It started as a black fraternal paper in 1900. We know the story because it became the movie Hidden Figures. The black press also forced the nation to look at the results of unrestrained white violence by printing pictures of Emmett Till's open casket in 1955. And the black press continues to run stories that will make thoughtful people pause and perhaps do more research on their own. The Word in Black group recently ran a story questioning why the social media platform Twitter, now known as X, refuses to verify many established members of the black press or the journalists and publishers associated with them. That includes Janice Ware and the Atlanta Voice. Those examples are reasons the black press, and all legitimate forms of cultural storytelling are vital. But it doesn't mean they're easy to maintain. Janice says she's fortunate. Younger people on her staff are charting a different approach to storytelling. They've converted the building that used to house the printing press into a video studio. I think it's going to be powerful in that we will actually be able to bring people into the studio. They can tell their stories. And just much like what you're doing now, we'll be able to listen to the voices and the passion of the person that you're talking to to really explain what took place and why it was taking place at that point. So I'm excited about it. It's taken a while, but I walked back there one day and said, you know, this is a lot of wasted space. So what could we do? So we did do an event with Senator Warnock when he was running. And we filmed that in that space with two other newspapers, the Georgia Asian Times and Mundo Hispanico. And it was wonderful. And I can envision that we can have a schedule, much like this, to have eight people come in a day and just continue to record and capture the histories and the stories of the people who have really led this city. Janice also expresses gratitude that some of the people wanting these innovations include a third generation from her family. So I have two nephews and a niece. The oldest nephew is Richard Dunn. He's a brilliant person, and he's done some great things, and he's done a lot to actually bring opportunities to the paper as well. I will tell you that maybe four or five years ago, he handed over a database to us of about 85,000 email addresses. At that point, I had no idea what to do with them, but we did keep them. So we've been able to purge that list a bit. 
and build on that database. It's not, I think we're closer to 35,000, but I think that we are in a place to be able to recognize that we have to change. And if you don't change, you're going to be left behind. So he's coming in to look at things differently. He's very excited about the digital studio, however, because I think he can see how he can fit into that space. So, you know, we have to grow. We have to continue to grow into this space, and I think it's going to be a great transition. I'm looking forward to not only Richard coming in, but my niece, Jasmine, who is 17 years younger than he is, who's also interesting, excellent writer, who's moving back to the city, who will be involved in the paper as well. And she's participating in some of the trainings and the calls at this point. So I think as long as you've got somebody who's interested in doing what needs to be done to continue to make us a viable organization is going to be important. It also helps that the Atlanta Voice does not operate in a vacuum. In addition to being a part of the Word in Black group, they're a member of the National Newspaper Publishers Association. Okay, quick historical fact. The NMPA was originally called the National Colored Press Association in 1881. That faded away in 1909 and was replaced by the National Negro Press Association, which was part of the National Negro Business League, founded by Booker T. Washington, and established the group that hosts this podcast. The NMPA was started in 1939. The National Newspaper Publishers Association actually is an association of over 200 African-American newspapers that have been publishing newspapers for some of them over 100 years. And that is that society that we're talking about. The fact is, some of the papers may not have converted to the digital space as fast as some of the others. But because, again, I had young people in the office saying, this is what you need to do, Ms. Ware. You need to go this way. And, and because I realized that they're in the community, we need to realize how to get there. And sometimes we, as older people, have a tendency to stay stuck and almost say stuck on stupid to say, no, we've always done it this way, so we can continue to do it this way. But then I go back and reflect on when I started working for my father. He wanted things ABC. And then I kept saying, but data, we could do it better if you did it this way. And the response was, that's not what I asked you to do. So I learned, give him ABC and then the way he wants it. And then I said, after you, after you finish doing that, would you just take a look at what I'm you know, presenting to you? And that was the way that you could convert. You have to show people. You can't tell them that they're wrong. You've got to show them that there's a different way because it's not that they're doing it the wrong way. It's just a better way. So we have to learn how to communicate to that next generation. So I guess in a lot of ways, I could feel that being the case with my nephew. He probably doesn't think I'm doing things the right way, but I've been successful at doing this for 42 years. So we have to realize, let's accept what's there, but show me how to do it better. Janice's willingness to learn is good news for someone working in a difficult industry, usually staffed with a lot of stodgy, headstrong people. Janice, though, is optimistic about the industry and the Atlanta Voice newspaper. I'm excited about the future. I don't think it's going to die. We've got to have a way of recording the history. I just would encourage young people to support us in ways that they may have not done in the past, but we do have a lot of young people who are committed. And we participate in a program with the National Newspaper Publishers Association once a year to discover the unexpected. So we will be getting two or three interns coming in this year. And it's amazing when they actually get ingrained into the community papers that they can celebrate that, relate to that, and figure out where that path is going to be from there. When we started this podcast, we told you it was going to give you information about a 197-year-old industry, the Black Press, a 57-year-old Black-owned newspaper, the Atlanta Voice, its two visionary publishers, Lowell and Janice Ware, 
affordable housing, SUMTAC, and a couple of deathbed requests. Fine, done. But it was also necessary to spend time telling you about one of the original, authentic sources of written history in the African-American experience. Authenticity is what the elegant, refined-looking, and very well-spoken Janice Ware is really all about. But don't let her exterior fool you. This is a bad babe who understands what her obstacles are and how to get around them. Do not be mistaken. She's always about achieving her goals. However, more importantly, she's a realistic futurist who has spent her life printing truth no matter what the consequences. And for that, Janice Ware, we salute you. You've just listened to an Atlanta Business League episode of Lessons from Leaders. This is part of the Telling Our Story broadcast series produced by Marty Covington and The Right Ones, recorded at The Plug Studios in Atlanta, Georgia, and edited by Chase Allen of Mar Chaz Co-Productions, LLC. All rights for this broadcast are reserved.